Hello and welcome to In Unison, the podcast for choral conductors, composers, and choristers, where we interview members of our choral community to talk about new music, new and upcoming performances, and discuss the interpersonal and social dynamics of choral organizations in the San Francisco Bay Area and beyond. Beyond. We are your hosts. I am Zane Fiala, Artistic Director of the International Orange Chorale of San Francisco. And I'm Giacomo Di Gregoli, a tenor in IOCSF, the Golden Gate Men's Chorus, and the San Francisco Symphony Chorus. And this is... In Unison! Today we chat with celebrated American composer Nico Muley about everything from Star Wars to drones, no, not that kind, the gamelan, and tons of other fun stuff. Buckle up, kids. It's going to be a fun ride. Okay, joining us today, we have Nico Muley. And Nico is an American composer and sought-after collaborator whose influences range from American minimalism to the Anglican choral tradition. Nico is the recipient of commissions from so many places, such as the Metropolitan Opera, Carnegie Hall, Los Angeles Philharmonic, Talis Scholars, and St. John's College, Cambridge, and others, of course. And he has written more than 100 works for the concert stage, including the opera Marnie in 2017, which premiered at the English National Opera and was staged by the Met in the fall of 2018. Nico is a frequent collaborator with choreographer Benjamin Millepied, and as an arranger has paired with Sufjan Stevens, Antony and the Johnsons, and others. His works for stage and screen include music for the Broadway revival of The Glass Menagerie and scores for films, including the Academy Award-winning The Reader. Born in Vermont, though currently a resident of New York City, Nico studied composition at the Juilliard School before working as an editor and conductor for Philip Glass. He's part of the artist-run record label Bedroom Community, which released his first two albums, Speaks Volumes in 06 and Mother Tongue in 08. Nico, did I miss anything? Did I get it all there? I, I don't think so. That seems like almost too much. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's great well, to have you on. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Nico, thank you for joining us. And we usually start these conversations with a little bit of an icebreaker to kind of just get to know you casually and okay. <laughs> um, have a little bit of a chat. Um, so here's one for you, which is, um, if you're anything like me, um, you probably grew up maybe standing in front of a microphone, imagining what your, um, you have a maybe rehearsed Oscar acceptance speech. And I thought we might start this morning with just a moment of gratitude of just, you know, thinking about um, if you were accepting an Oscar right now, what would your Oscar acceptance speech be like? And who would you thank? That's an extraordinary question. <laughs> I've never been asked that before. Um, <clears throat> well, f first of all, I, I, I will confess I didn't spend that much time in front of a microphone envisioning that. So um, <laughs> perhaps that's a, a difference between you and me. But I, I would say, you know, there's two, there's two paths through um, the sort of thanking <laughs> process. And one, one would be, you know, all the, all the teachers that I had in sort of formative ways, right? And it, it's, in general, it's like the people who kick your ass the hardest. And it's like, you know, my, my first piano teachers who recognized a kind of talent, but also a laziness. Um, my, my choir master, who was this kind of martinet, but very serious um, musician, sort of, um, you know, really important influence. And then moving, moving all through the sort of more traditional educational structures that I that I went through but in a lot of cases it's it's not I would I would end up sort of thanking a lot of non-musicians right so it would be you know uh, people who people who taught me uh Dickens at Columbia or whatever and then so that's one department is the kind of is the kind of pedagogy um uh 
history. And then the other would be sort of my, my community now. Right. And so that's, that's the people with whom I make music um, and for whom I write music. And that would be, you know, a, a sort of coterie of maybe eight or eight or a dozen people. Um, all of which is to say, you know, all, all of these things have come in much in sharper relief because of COVID, because it's like, you're, you don't get to be around people and you are really left with kind of what you have in the pantry in terms of your, you know, in, in terms of what you're making. So I, I've, I've been hyper aware of, of, um, you know, how, how lucky I've been to have had the pantry stocked so well and also how depressing it is to not be able to actually like go meet people. And, you know, I, I had, yeah, anyway, so that's a long and stupid answer to your good question. No, I love that. And by the way, like we've got the kiss and cry cam backstage. So if you remember somebody else later and you feel like throwing yeah. it in, by all means. Uh, we had one more, uh, which Zane actually wrote, which I thought was really fun. Um, so you just recently watched all the Star Wars movies. And if you could score the next big Star Wars universe movie, what would the title of the movie be? Oh, my God, that's outrageous. Um, <laughs> uh <laughs> I never even thought about the title. The titles are always such kind of jokes, anyway, right? I know. Like, I, I mean, I, I, I suppose it would be, it would be. Um, God, I, I don't know. Because where do we leave off? Everyone, everything was. Because I feel like the, the next Star Wars should just be, you know, domestic, domestic problems. Right? <laughs> <laughs> just like it's her like figuring you know figuring out you know what's wrong with the plumbing and you know the internet doesn't go and you know i i feel i think it would be that you know and what what, what she ends up using the force for is actually coming to fix like my spectrum internet yeah. in a galaxy very very close to your bathroom yeah, and you're exactly yeah. the east village you know yeah. she'll come and deal with this construction on the second avenue subway move the rocks around <laughs> So it would be that. It would be it would be Ray move some rocks around so they build the Second Avenue subway faster, and I can get to the Upper East Side for some reason. I love it. <laughs> oh man, um, I would love to shift gears a little bit now um, and talk a little bit about um, the Gamelan. which is a really interesting. Um, you you had a piece that, um, and there was an interview that we saw. Uh, Canadian music ethnologist Colin McPhee and Benjamin Britten wrote the Balinese ceremonial music for two pianos as a transcription of the gamelan music that McPhee heard in Bali, um, and which I think inspired part of your collaboration with Thomas Bartlett on Peter Pear's Balinese ceremonial yes. music. Um, and it said that McPhee's study of Balinese music played a role in the development of minimalism. For example, John Adams' China Gates for piano was maybe influenced by such music. Um, first question, is that kind of what inspired you to think about this instrument? Like, where did the, the idea for that project come from? Sure. So uh, this is a this is a complicated a complicated one, and it touches on four or five different kind of large areas of thought. Um, so you can make a pretty clear argument that Western music changed um, in the World's Fair in Paris when Debussy heard a gamelan for the first time. You can make an argument that that was a kind of seismic event um, in terms of what the what the kind of received harmonic and, and rhythmic language of music that was being written in France and then kind of expanding out um, around the turn of the century, the turn, turn of the 20th century. Number one. Number two, so that's one conversation is like the you know when that got into the DNA of Western music. The second part of the conversation is a more modern one about like appropriation and about you know what does that mean? What does that mean for a Western composer and ethnomusicologist, right? Um, which is an important distinction. <laughs> 
you know, to 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 question and to interrogate, um, to have made you know a transcription of this music that um, you know reduces the reduces and and, and kind of levels the scales that are being used in that music and the, and the notes that are in that instrument into what we have here, which is to say 12 notes, you know, what, what is that process of, you know, it, it is a colonial gesture um, to a certain extent. So number one, number two, or number three, yeah, <laughs> number three, the question then becomes, what does that quote unquote mean? And how have people used that? And, and what is the if you're going to say it's kind of a colonial project, it's also kind of not in a sense because it wasn't used as a form of saying, you know, these people have no history, these people have no culture, as you see in, for instance, Australia, right? Like that's an argument for for Aboriginal, you know, genocide. Essentially, you say, oh, they're just kind of wandering around, which is it wasn't that. It was it was you know, McPhee had enormous respect for it, um, but of course, it it comes with the weight of all this complexity. What I was interested in is not my relationship to it, right? Because no one cares what, you know, it's like, no, no one, I, I, no, you know, champagne isn't on ice waiting for my, my thoughts about the gamelan. But what I think I could offer is how I see it relating to the music that I love. So it's basically two generations removed. When McPhee came back from Bali, um, he and Benjamin Britten, he, he had written the transcriptions. He and Britten recorded them in this house in Brooklyn where they were living. So the original recording of those transcriptions is really mesmerizing because this is jacked up piano. And, you know, it's from the 30s and it, or from the 40s. And, and it's, it's a really, shut up. I'll, and I'll actually... And 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 just as a side note, like it, it, the, you, tr it sounded like you also treated the piano in some way on the first track in that, just, or it was maybe just, just out of tune it. or something. It, we just—it's an old piano. It's actually right—it's right, okay. right over there. Okay. Um, anyway, so so for me, what was what was interesting about about Britain's relationship, right, is that you always can listen to his music with this sense of craft underneath which is always something else, and there's something always a little bit out of view in a way that's very English and also also very gay. And I think that one of the transmission methods of this gamelan music that Britain takes advantage of is this kind of formal abstraction, which he also takes from Japanese music, but you but you see in the church parables, right? So you see in, in Curly River, Burning Fiery Furnace, um, and you see very, very explicitly um, at the end of Death in Venice. And the Tajo music is is very explicitly taken from um, from Balinese Javanese music, and the very last page of of Death in Venice is this. It just kind of there's this deliquescence into that into that imagined scale. So clearly, for Britain at the end of his life, it had this serious emotional import, right? And 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 you can then expand that argument out into saying. You know, there was this sense that the disease in Venice at that time came from the East. There was this sense of, the, you know, there was a built-in kind of xenophobic project of that, of that moment, and also, by the way, this moment right? that we're still that we're still reckoning we're still, with to yeah, this day. Yeah, we're still reckoning with to this day. And so, with with there, there feels to me like there was this kind of invisible handshake that happens at the end, right, where it's Britain remembering his relationship with McPhee 
and then you know going back to McPhee's time in Bali, and so there's there's a kind of a kind of um, continuity of this material. And I know this this sounds very complicated when you say it, but essentially what I, what, what I was trying to say with that project with Thomas was let's not be influenced. And I'm doing air quotes for for listeners. Let's not be influenced by this thing. Let, let's let's think about transmission and and how something gets into the bloodstream of somewhere and then you, what you end up with in the in you know right now today in 2021 um where does that come from and what has it meant and what is it what does it mean now so the the reason we ask um is because a, a couple of seasons ago um or actually was it our last most most recent concert when we actually Second get together season, uh, 2019 yeah we worked we have a, a composer in residence every year with IOC and that season was Robin Estrada who um uh, with Zane programmed a concert called East by Southeast. And part of that was we performed uh, a piece called Tetabeo Hansungut by Slamet Abdul Sukud. <laughs> And for a lot of us in the choir, it was the first time we had experienced it. And, and Robin brought it to us because she was like, I want you to experience this. Um, and Zane will take over here in a second because I, we wanted to get your thoughts about the score. Um, the score that Robin and, and Zane asked us to look at was actually not in Western notation at all. And it was, again, this sort of notion of like the intention of like, well, how do you want people, like, what's the three line? How do you want people to absorb what you're seeing here? All the way down to whether or not we were looking at something that was notated in sort of a Western score fashion. Um, and so, Zane, I don't know if you have this. This is going to be hard to explain. Um, for folks who are listening, um, we will put um, the, the image of the, the score in our, on our website as well. But just kind of wanted to get your reaction to thinking about this and like how you feel looking at this as a, as a musician trying to learn what this is. Okay, I'm just looking here. Zero graphics, pinch on our mode. So, do I just move a lot of fixed C? Fine, I'll be pitch. Okay, this is fine. This is, <laughs> this, you just do what it says. I mean, it's not, you know, essentially, essentially, it's a graphical notation. Um, exactly. This is from 1976. You know, at that time, uh, I think there was a, there was a perhaps greater interest in, in doing things this way. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I think I could figure this out. Essentially, it's just, it's graphic notation in in the way that you'd find in, I don't know, like the Cage Carillon music or whatever. Like it, you, there's, it's a graphic notation, but th there are Western notations on top of it indicating a kind of example fragment. And then, I mean, honestly, this is not, for, for me, this isn't that crazy. It's, it would take a second to decode, but I think, I think it's fine. Um, I guess, and I guess the question to follow up on there is, does the, does this process of decoding matter? Well, you know, this is an interesting question. I mean, I think, I think speaking, speaking as a composer and speaking as an interpreter are two different things. And I think that there are a lot of people, there are a lot of musicians I know who would love to deal with this, right? They would love, in, in the same way, it's like people who love puzzles, right? And right. it's people people who love, I mean, you know, the, the French word for sight reading is déchiffrage, right? Literally decoding. Um, and, and uh, you know, I think there are, there are people for whom this is like, oh my God, I can't wait to get in there. Um, and I think that's true of... Uh, I mean, there's a, I, there, I can think of like 60 things that are, that are like this. Um, 
And no, number one, number two, um, I think that there's a a joy is in the context of teamwork in doing stuff like this. And I think doing something like this together brings you kind of emotionally closer to the person with whom you have to do it. And I think that's true with, uh, could be this, or it could be an Akagem motet, or it could be, you know, music from the 15th century that doesn't have bar lines, or it could be music from, you know, that requires electronic interpretation. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty like go for it with this stuff. What I, what I'm not, a huge fan of which is not what this piece is doing but sometimes sometimes they're sometimes the kids get obsessed with this kind of notation and and it, what you end up with is something that's actually not clear this is mm-hmm. clear mm-hmm. um and something you know this is clear it's a code you decode it then you know what to do it it you know how do i put this if you've written a score that requires you to teach it to somebody there's a problem with that which is mm. that you might die <laughs> and in fact you will die and um you happens know, to and the best of us yes i mean you know it, 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 right we should all be so lucky so it in in you know so there's two things there there's music that exists in a kind of totally oral tradition right where no one's writing anything down there's music that exists in a hyper notated hyper notated situation and then there's music that exists in this kind of middle space which is probably the biggest right in the same way that baroque music is not fully written out ever right it's like we know what these act we we huge air quotes everyone we know what these ornamentations mean we've inherited the, the oral tradition of baroque music is performance practice right like you know how to do these like agogic accents before the end and you know to sort of speed up into these resolutions and not into the whatever um so you know decoding is decoding can be really fun and uh and again i think there 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 are musicians who would look at that and say i don't think it's worth my time to do this mm-hmm. and there are others who would literally like cancel all their appointments and just work on that for two years well it's interesting we were talking a couple of days ago with um or rather we attended a, a instagram live feed with a gentleman named uh, alex blake who uh, leads at a group called tonality in la um and he is the one of the authors of a thing called the black voices matter pledge and the conversation was largely around um, ADEI, sort of access and, and diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion. And what's interesting to me about this score, and what I wonder if you think about this at all, is my gut reaction to that score and looking at that was like, this feels like it can be a little bit more accessible to folks who are just like, I don't know, I never learned to read music, right? Like when you talk with Alex and, and he mentions... Um, um, how music is generally taught in gospel choirs, right? Like they're like, no, no, no we're not, we're not reading music. I'm, it's just going to be that oral tradition. Right. Um, how do you think about creating those kinds of access points for folks who are looking at your scores or who maybe want to sort of perform any Western notated music, but kind of throw their hands up and they're like, oh, I don't know. Sure. I mean, I, I, I'll confess to you, you know, because how do I put this? It's never really come up in the context of a like the clo- the closest I've come to this is is working with um working with partially hearing impaired uh, students on choral pieces where it's like the, and it's kids and I think kids have a really different relationship to uh, the, the printed page as than, than adults do. And sometimes it literally is like, okay, that, that is physically higher than that. So I will physically raise my voice. That's, you know, but, but all, all of which to say is I, I have not, 
given too much thought to this specific issue because it lies I would say relatively far outside of the sort of ken of what it is that I what it is that I do, with the exception of the music that I've written explicitly for children, which which is again a slightly different thing because because of the nature of of you know the kids are going to be like probationers at King's College Cambridge or something, so it's a very, it's a different it's a different situation, um, you know, and it, this is also something again where I don't think my voice is needed in it. Like I'd rather I'd rather the people who are not rather as if I have a choice. I I, I think that there are so many people who are great at that at, at that process of figuring out alternative means of trans of transmission that having been said i also think that you know there are people who there are people who can't read music who can hear you play something on the piano and can play it back like it's not it's not actually that rare to have non-musicians able to able to do that and you know there there are non-musicians who don't know that they have pitch but they do have pitch because they can always sing a song that they know in the exact same key you know so it's i again i don't worry about it too much unless there's a situation <clears throat> where i can specifically help right so if someone were to say all right you're going to write a piece for a choir of people who don't read music now what you know and then you figure out something like shape note or you figure you know you figure it out um but right so there's there's a form, there's a conversation about access that is like specifically related to what you were talking about that hasn't explicitly arisen in in my context which isn't again you know it's not it's not it's not because i don't care i just feel like there are other voices who could speak to that better than than i could switching gears a little bit into sort of social impact or social issues and sort of like the message of compositions. Like, I think you see this a lot, and especially now, like, there are lots of folks who are writing to say something specific. Um, and you've said, a piece of music can and should exist as a space in which all manner of emotional itineraries are possible, all within a single context. A piece of live music unfolds in real time and is experienced by a roomful of people at precisely the same moment, but should mean different things to each of them. And I think you also used a metaphor of a cathedral. It's sort mm -hmm. of like you can take a snapshot yeah. at any moment, and there's tons of stories in there. Um, Flipping the script a little bit, have you have you ever done the opposite? Have you ever set things to mean something specific or, or had that thought in your mind? Well, I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. I mean mm. I, I mean I think, you know, I don't I don't want to tell people what to think, but I think I think, you know, it's sort of like suggested suggested use. Um, and and you know, an opera is pretty is pretty suggested use e, right? The kinds that I that I write where it's like, this is the story, this is where this happens, like, you know, the kid gets stabbed here, like, you can care about it or not, you know? Um, but, you know, I think, I think, I still try to avoid, um, avoid, like, the loudest bit or the quietest bit being the most emotional bit and the fastest bit being the fastest bit, like, too, too much one-to-one -one ratio, which mm -hmm. isn't to say that I dislike music that does that. Like, I sometimes, I sometimes want to get on that train like i want to get on the romantic music train where it's like very clear where you're like meant to get that nut right but i but sometimes i don't and some and sometimes you know and, and again this sort of relates to what i just said it's like <clears throat> I, I i always feel a little uncomfortable kind of responding to, to something i've said in the past because it makes it seem like i'm skewing any other uh any other way to make which is not what I'm doing. It's more just saying like my my project is not that. So, but that having been said, you know, it, but think about it again, like architecture, right? Like there is there is a thing that the architect is up to, but part of what that thing can be is creating atmosphere 
that is flexible and creating spaces where, yes, yeah, sure, this is the kitchen, but also you can have it in a weird kind of personal, personal way. And I think, again, thinking, you know, thinking about sacred architecture is a really good way to do that um, because it isn't domestic architecture. It isn't, nor, nor is it a, a kind of narrative thing. I don't, I don't, I don't know how to describe it, but I, but I do know that, that it's something that I, that I, that I set out to do and not to say that any other way is, is, is a bad way. And, and, and relating to what I imagine is the follow-up of this, where it's like, you know, there's so much music I'll put it a different way. There are so many composers who are really good at at encoding political, emotional, politico-emotional, you know, any combination of those things. Uh, uh, kind of deep, uh, let, let me think about how to put this, deep resonances about complicated ideas, about, you know, the, the, the practical world in which we live and and everything goes along with it the emotional life of um the composer the emotional perceived life of a community there are many compo composers who are very good at that um so i don't feel the, i don't feel the need to do it um and i think you know if i make something oblique and weird that people can relate to in a different way then that's you know i'm staying in my lane <laughs> Well, so uh, on the same tip, or, or kind of continuing in the same trajectory of those questions, um, some of the composers we we chat with are very hyper specific about certain things, like their engraving, or like their intentions, or like they will be very specific, like super super specific about things, um, about dynamic workings or whatever. Um, have you ever seen a performance of any of your pieces where the performers just took certain liberties with your composition? And where do you draw the line between being like, okay, that's not mine anymore? I mean, it's it's obviously once you put it in people's right. hands, it becomes theirs. But, you know, is there a point at which you've ever seen performers just take your piece and do something with it where you're like, huh? No. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> no, I, I literally haven't. I mean, I think, I think what I try to do, I mean, for me, going back to what we were saying before, notation is a form of communication between me and the performers, right? And notation exists as precisely or imprecisely as you want. Um, and you should feel free to experiment with that. And, you know, you can try writing a score that has no dynamic markings and see what happens. You can try writing a score that has, you know, hyper, hyper, hyper specific markings. You can try any combination of those things. And as long as it's clear, you get what you deserve. So if, or you get what you ask for. So, so if I, if I've written something that says, you know, that says espressivo, right? Whatever, and and I'm not deliberate about what I mean by that. Um, that that opens up a little space between me and the performers, in which the performer is invited to make a variety of decisions, right? If I write a little pattern in a box and I say repeat out of time, you know, asynchronous, whatever, whatever, whatever the performer does is correct by definition. Um, mm -hmm. I've I've literally never had it go haywire in that way i mean sometimes sometimes someone will ignore a tempo marking and that's frustrating but it's like you know i think that unless i've said absolute strict tempo which i which i do sometimes right where you say you know no slower than or whatever but in general like the thing that actually opened up my whole world in in, ter in terms of that was opera because you know you can be as specific as you want 
but when that curtain goes up, the thing that occurs is hundreds of people trying to do it right. And hundreds of people trying to do it right who have memorized this thing, fully, like, literally embodied the thing. And for me, at that moment, what they do becomes the right thing. Because, you know, it's it's so deep inside their muscles that, you know, if they're reaching for a high note and then float it, and I wrote forte, it's correct what they did. Because, you know what I mean? It's like, and and you can you can be an asshole about it and be like, oh, that's not what I meant. Um, but... But there's a certain beauty in kind of just letting yeah, and seeing what fine. happens. And the other thing is, you know, if I want if I want total total control, I will do it all myself, or I'll right. do it in the studio. So those those the albums that I've made, which is, you know, speaks volumes and Mother Tongue and other projects or film scores or whatever, you know, I have absolute control because I'm in the studio. I can stop i can say don't do that do it do it this way i can you know I, I can fix it in post you know i can i can turn one instrument to another you can you can mute someone entirely so i have enough i have enough um avenues for that level of control where i don't feel like my concert music or my choral music has to be that that um hy- hyper notated but i will say something else interesting which is i've also learned <laughs> that if your music is undermarked and looks very, very simple. Oftentimes, and this, you know, I hope people aren't <laughs> too many people aren't listening to this, but it was some sometimes, let's say, um, your inclination will not be to practice it. Because if there's four con four pieces on a concert and one is like mine that's just like, you know, dead simple, and then the other one is, you know, atonal and and whatever, and the intervals are complicated. And then the third one looks like, you know, it's gonna sound like R2D2 and the score looks like raccoons got into it. Like the, you know, you're gonna you're gonna focus on the raccoons. Right. And then you'll just be like, oh no, 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 no. We'll, we'll just do the muley at the end. So I, I've started to be a little bit more detailed about certain things just to indicate that I care. <laughs> well like, like like what's an example of that? An example an example is like <clears throat> more dynamic so so essentially if you if you are playing the oboe and you see a line that's like a simple line sometimes you won't realize that you're that it's that you're the primary voice right so i'll add something that says you know solo or whatever to the four and then you really shape the phrase for them and you show exactly like where the crescendo would lead to in a way that that they might do naturally to a piece of you know, to the Brahms, you know, violin concerto, like, you know how to shape it, but indicating that I know, that they know, that we know all know together that this is a melody and this is how I would do it. You know, indicating really clearly things like, for choral music, do you want me to cut off before the beat or on the beat? Indicating, do you want to place the S, whatever, or do you want the N to be vocalized or not vocalized? Just just being a little bit more careful about that. Um, and part of that arose my, my interest in specificity out of a couple situations where even though the piece I wrote looked simple, it was actually complicated and suffered from a lack of rehearsal. Number one. And number two, you know, again, I don't like being in a situation where musicians feel like they're kind of flying blind, mm. you know, like, and they don't, they don't feel like they know what I want. That's bad. <laughs> um, and, and I think, you know, and th- there's two versions of bad. There's one version where they feel bad and they kind of just wing it and then, but in different ways. And that's my fault, right? If I haven't been clear, that's on me. Right. Um, 
there are other situations where in like an orchestra rehearsal, like some random musician will decide that like the move is to stop the rehearsal and ask a really specific question about like, do you want stems in or stems out on the mute? And I'm like, first of all, this is like the first reading of this thing. It's Tuesday morning. We can talk about this at lunch. <laughs> you know what I mean? But you know, you we, we, we call that chorus Dolores in our group where it's yeah, just no, that exactly. person and who's very always, like hyper detailed. And, and you're like, a, oh, and I'm like, we'll talk like, and, and, so wait. Now, and now I'm like, I'll tell you if it's wrong, but, but you know, your, your, fir- your first instinct, the first time it happens to you when you're a young composer and it's like, you have an eight minute piece and you have five minutes of rehearsal and someone asks about some random cutoff and you're like, can I have your mom's number? Cause you were raised wrong. Like <laughs> yes. I miss money. Like I can't deal with it, you know. Anyway, so I in again, I know that person doesn't mean because they're trying to do it right. So you assume best intentions, and in the interest of not having rehearsal stop, as specific as you can possibly be, is an act of respect to the musicians. You heard it here, people. Nico Muley said, "Hold your freaking questions till the end of rehearsal." It is nice to other people who are rehearsing with you. I will also say, you know, P.S. in in a context of of making orchestra music or whatever. Like if I have something to say to a player, I'll probably wait. And it, you know, unless it's something that applies to like five people, right? Where you're like, oh, can everyone, can everyone just crescendo through that note or whatever? You know, that's, that's fine to say in the context, but actually one of the reasons that I love what I do and one of the reasons I hate what's going on right now is that I don't get to have that terror, that, that moment in the break room, you know what I mean? At like yeah. in the Philharmonie in Cologne or at, you know, in, in like the Fritz Phillips Hall in Eindhoven or whatever it is, like, you know, next to that weird Dutch coffee machine that like is ho- horrible and you pay a euro, but it's like really delicious somehow. And then you find the English horn player, introduce yourself, and then, you know, chances are you'll have a new friend because you behaved like a mammal. Yeah. <laughs> Were you, um, speaking of that, having those moments, um, you recently, um, there was a new opera that you wrote called Glitch. Um, that was extraordinary. I mean, it just literally like knocked my socks off. Oh, thank you. I didn't go through with it. You came awfully close. That's why I panicked that night. I didn't. I didn't go through. It's fascinating because, um, for those who don't know, it's basically like Escape from Denimora, but like, it's it's this notion of these these felons who broke out and this sort of... True story. story. It's a true story. It's a true story, yes. And uh, it's a true story. But one of the things that's equally fascinating, aside from the sort of impact of, of watching this piece, which is really remarkable, was watching the sort of after bits where it's it's just two performers. There's a pianist. There's an iPad, I think, that like the two performers were looking at. Um, okay, yeah. Fascinating, by the way, how you were able to put all that together. In that process, were you able to have those moments with the with the performers and the folks who were involved? I mean, no. were you able to create those moments? No, no. Yeah. And I think and this is a perfect example of like 
Corona nightmare. I mean, yeah, yeah. it was commissioned within within this time, so we knew that that was the situation. Um, <clears throat> that you know, I did a, I did another piece that might be worth investigating at, at, around the same time called Throughline for the San Francisco Symphony. which is this really complicated, basically a full orchestra piece. Um, it's on YouTube and and it's kind of the opposite version of that where I was just up in everyone's grills the whole time, uh, you know, be, like, cause I was there on the stage with them, but you know, one at a time with masks and people in puppy pads and all this stuff. So, but, but the glitch is an interesting example because that was really put together by Marcus Shields and Neil Gorin. So Marcus is the producer and Neil, Neil's the conductor and artistic director of this brand new opera company. I knew all of the participants really well. Um, I hadn't written for Lester before, but I knew his work. Um, Christy Swan uh, was the was the cover for Denise Graves in Marnie, um, and I, for whatever scheduling reasons, Christy took a week of rehearsals, and I literally took her aside and I was like, "I want to write for you." <laughs> um, and it's you know, and again, that's that weird magic moment, right, where it's like you're at your rehearsal. And the cover mezzo soprano comes out, and you're like, "That's so badass!" Like, let's make something together. You know, three and a half years later, um, Adam Adam Tendler uh, is a wonderful pianist, also from Vermont. I wrote the part on him. You know, it, and so that's to that's in a certain extent, to a certain extent, the kind of the kind of piece where you're you're writing into a known void, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, and on compositions, just switch, shifting gears just a little bit because I'm I'm curious personally about this as well. Um, you've said, the primary task, I feel, is to create a piece of art that is better than the same amount of silence. I would prefer to sit silently thinking for 10 minutes than to listen to certain pieces of music and therefore feel that it is my duty as a composer to occupy the time of the listener and the musicians with something challenging, engaging, engaging and emotionally alluring. And I totally agree with that. Um, a question for you about that statement. Uh, how do you experience your compositions? I mean, can a composer affect themselves when you hear it come back? That's an interesting question. I mean, I find it difficult to listen to my own music sometimes. Um, I'm not sure why. It just well, it feels like listening to your voice on the answering machine or something. Like there's something kind of off about it. I mean, I try to make the music as how do I put this? I try to bake enough of my interests, obsessions, emotional, whatever is into the material at such an early level that it, it's yeah, yes, listening to it affects me, but in different, different ways and in different times. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's more like a memory of having written it or a memory of kind of where I was again, air quotes. I mean, more like what, what my, what, what I, what my artistic obsessions were at that time. Um, and those things are always are always very moving. I also um, you know written about this, but I, I was kind of mismedicated for a long time for bipolar, which meant that there was this kind of weird hole in the music that I wrote that I don't really remember at all. So sometimes when I, I hear those pieces, it's it's simultaneously really depressing and also kind of moving. And and there's a period around 2015 when I, when I got better over the course of a year. Those pieces I find actually quite moving because they're it. I really can hear it undo itself um 
I can just, I can just hear my communicative strategies becoming more generous. And that's pieces like the viola concerto. That's pe that's a piece um, called spiral mass. There's, there's a couple, there's like five or six things are, are around that time. So those things, yes, it can be affecting, but also like no one really needs to know that if that makes sense. Like yes. that, and that's what I hate about, about reading music history where it's like, I, like, I don't need to know like the Clara Schumann got her pussy ate. Like, I just don't care. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just like that's great. You ju you just need to know that she got a cup of coffee in the morning beforehand. Yeah, that her state was okay. Just, it, yeah, exactly. I, I don't want to know where Brahms, but like it's, I, it's like I it, you know it it just feels crazy to me. Like to I mean I'll, I'll say also I don't need to know. I don't think anyone else doesn't need to know. And I'm very glad that people want to read about like you know what list said to wagner that time they were there that that's great like that's a that's a good use of someone's time <laughs> keeps them off the pole you know but um <laughs> anyway so all, all that is to say yes so, some of it does do, does have an effect but again you know it and this is a, a corona conversation one of the things that i think a lot of us have been wrestling with is that you know we like to think and we talk about the music being in in the abstract right if you're a composer like you're, you're writing this thing that you know, has weight and dimension and is a stack of paper and whatever. And then that, you know, composers are lucky because we can still compose at, at this time. But for me, again, it goes back, it goes back to those moments of those, those serendipitous moments when you're in a room with people making music, but it also goes back to this kind of social element of this thing, which is why does this thing exist? And, you know, for, for me, writing choral music is always what it comes back to. And this is another reason that I, I think so much about duration is that if you write a setting of the canticles, right, of the Magnificat Nunc Dimittis, people are standing when they hear it, right? You are standing up. I mean, if you're doing it the right way. <laughs> um, and, and uh, you know, it exists in a liturgical context. No one claps. No one really even cares who you are. It doesn't matter. It's, it's this kind of method to make method to allow the assembled company to sort of look upwards, right? In the same way that incense and architecture combine to create this like directional gesture that isn't a romantic narrative. So um, one of the things that I think we've all been missing are these stupid social interactions, like, the, like where you yeah. just meet someone at the bar beforehand for two seconds. Or for me, the most touching is always if, you know, if you're doing one thing and like conducting some Baroque thing and then, an old friend of yours is in town rehearsing an opera at that time and you meet at the market and have some fucked up oyster at two o'clock in the afternoon before everyone has to go back. You know, it's like that those moments where there's a sense of there's a sense of intended and unintentional community that I find so important. In, in what we all do. But accompanied with that is this weird guilt where I'm like, well, does that mean I don't actually, <laughs> does that mean I don't yeah. actually care about the notes and the rhythms? Yeah. No, well, some, something personally that I've, I've been struggling with uh, myself um, in, and recently we're thinking about this. Um, I sing with a group called the Golden Gate Men's Chorus in addition to singing with IOC. And GGMC is uh, turning 40 this year. We're very excited. And we may, we may reach out and ask you for a commission, by the way, just side note in case you see that coming. You, you have but thank you. Um, but one of the things that we've been thinking about a lot, of course, you know, uh, being a member of a gay choir, like the gay choral movement kind of really picked up in like the late 70s, early 80s, part of the like sort of big sweeping American, you know, choral tradition picking up. And, you know, GGMC has been a, like, was a founding member of GALA, which is the Gay and Lesbian Association of, of Choirs, and it's mostly North America, it's US and, and Canada. 
And one of the things I'm struggling with, and particularly now that we're like kind of looking back on, on 40 years of, of making music and as this sort of small community in San Francisco, the, the question kind of keeps coming up, which is like, well, why do we still need gay choirs, right? Like, especially when it's like men's choir, like, and the word men is right there, and it's and it already sort of on its face feels like we're, we're saying something about who's welcome right. and who's not, even though it's openly kind of welcome to anybody. I mean, what, I, are you, what are your thoughts about the needs for gay choirs? Like, do we still need them? I mean, is there any other kind? <laughs> <laughs> yes, they're like lesbian, like field, field hockey, women's field hockey teams are generally <laughs> no, staffed I, by, I, <laughs> yeah. Not in my world. Let's, I mean, let's be honest, you know, yeah. No, uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's one of those things where unless, <clears throat> unless you think that the Queens, only the Queens can sing the Brahms Alto Rhapsody in a special way. Like I, you know, I, but I think I, how, how old are you? Uh, five years older than you, 45. Okay. I, I feel like we might exist on slightly different cusps of, of the necessity for something like that. Um, but I will say that it, I imagine not myself having been part of any form of homosexual collective, um, that there is a, there was, or there is a need for an explicit piece of community making. Um, and I think, you know, my, I'm, I'm thinking more now of my friends in London in the sort of pink singers where it's about, it's about just kind of that form of not to use the too sacred a term, but that form of fellowship that can be so lacking um, in people's lives in a variety of ways. Again, you know, in my personal experience, um, most choirs with whom one deals <laughs> is, is uh, of the, of the purpler, variety yes, moot point basically um, yeah or, but it's also it's not even about that i i think i really i really do think it's, a, it's about a question of community and i think if you, if if it was needed it was made and i think that's i think that's great um yeah. it's you know i think also um how do i put this i i think there's there's too much or not enough rep <laughs> for something like that and then sometimes you end up in the kind of show tunes land which is fine but um yeah, I don't know. I, I I don't know. I hope that I hope that things like that exist, um, you know, as as long as long as they're genuinely emotionally and artistically useful for the people who are in them and and who li- listen to it. And maybe also following on this, the tip of this, um, speaking on sort of identity and being a composer, every bio I've seen of you or every description that I've seen of you online is very clear that it's Nico Muley, American composer, American composer, Nico Muley. And some of that I think is because I was reading The Guardian and in the UK, they want to just be clear about that. Um, Do you consider yourself an American composer? And what does that, what does that mean? Well, you know, what's so funny is like like legally or whatever, my publishers are English. And I think, I think the, the UK universe has like, has like adopted me slightly, slightly more now. Cause I'm, you know, it's there half the year anyway. Like this is, this is the first year I haven't been in the UK half the year since 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I think that's just, that's just a shorthand because I have, I have a name that's unclear where it could be from. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I, I've never really, I've never really clocked it. Um, but I think it's, I think it's a, it's part of what you do as any, as any sort of musician as you just say where you're from. I think, I think it's, it's, um, I, I don't consider it like a, like a fundamental part of my identity that people need to understand, <laughs> like, but you yeah. know, whatever, like may, maybe it is. <clears throat> well, there, there, I mean, there is sort of this notion and I don't know how true this is or not. I, I haven't spent very much time <clears throat> investigating it, but, um, 
we went to an ACDA and we asked uh, <laughs> a very well-known composer who I won't mention, um, you know, what, what is the American sound? Is there such a thing? Um, and, he, you know, his response was just like, well, there's, there's me. And I'm like, really? Just you? Just you? Right. Um, I, I, do you think there's such a thing? Like, what does that even mean? I mean, I, I, I think there totally is and there totally isn't. I mean, I think, but I think, it, I think it's more a constellation. Of, it's, it's like seeing con- similar constellations and calling them different things, right? Like mm. the plow versus the, the you know, the, uh, the dipper versus, like, I, I think there, what, what there is or are, what, what you can observe handily is like a pedagogical tradition, Right. And I think I think if you rewind to like the 80s, for instance, there was definitely more geographically specific places where things sounded a certain way, like Darmstadt sounded like this. American composers who weren't in institutions sounded like that. Uh, You know, France has always been its own universe. But now I feel like people have passports and are moving around more stylistically. And, it, you know, again, born in the 80s. And sort of coming of age stylistically in the in the early '90s, but really kind of later, you you realize that it's really what the musicians around you are playing that it that informs what you do. And I'm incredibly lucky to have so many friends who are are just at home playing, just as at home playing Boulez as they are playing John Adams as they are playing Reich playing. You know, so there's always this. There's a there. You know, the, the metaphor I always use is that. I'm obviously from America, but doesn't mean I can't go somewhere else for a minute. Um, and I, I definitely don't think it's a useful way to talk about anything. However, <laughs> I will say that there is a thing about orchestral playing that is specific to, and I think you, you see this, I, I think this is something that John Adams talks about, and you should probably dig up the quote before I disgrace myself. Um, or you just drive over his house. Uh, <laughs> but it, it is it is a sense that that there is a certain kind of American music, which is to say the kind of repetition economy, uh, where a lot of American musicians have played more of that music, and therefore it's baked in, like there's a metronome baked in um, that you don't necessarily always find in other places. So there's a mm-hmm. sense of <clears throat> I don't want to say rhythmic accuracy because that's not what I mean, but listen to people who aren't from America playing Steve Reich's uh, New York Counterpoint, and you'll see what I mean. It's just, there's something kind of CGI'd about the swing of it. Um, it's like like a strict adherence to score or something. Or, something, or, like, or, it, or it's like it goes the wrong way, or it's there's there's always something. I don't think it's uninteresting, and it doesn't make the piece bad, and doesn't make the performance bad. There is that that's the piece. That's the example I always give. Is is um, those Reich pieces where you're playing with your own self, and you have to kind of groove in a specific way. That will sound different, um, but it also kind of doesn't matter. Again, it's like it's like you know. I, I think I always think that's a, that's a sort of. I don't want to say lazy, but it's a, it's a shorthand way to understand someone's someone's style. And I think, you know, how do I put this? If you've been described in the press as like indicative of this and this style, if you start believing that, then it starts change. It starts changing what you write. <laughs> well, and and speaking of which, just totally random question: Do you do you read the reviews? 
No, and listen, no one believes me, and I will tell you, not only do I not read it, here's what I did. So I, I stopped, I, I had to stop reading because it's driving me so crazy around, around yeah. Two Boys in London. And it's driving me crazy because it was like, a com- it was a combination of things. It was like, you know, no one likes to hear something bad said about one's own work, number one. Number two, you realize really quickly that there's a bigger narrative at work, right? So someone wants, so people are like, the, the the notes and the rhythms kind of vanish in this imagined foam of like so- social thing where it's like, oh, well, you know, it's the end of British opera if they're commissioning these Americans or it's like, it's like, because there's a grand opera, like no one cares about chamber opera anymore. It's, it's a, it's part of a journalistic kind of, um, uh, how do how do I say it, it's part of a lens or a, yeah, a perspective a that they bring to the table? And I don't think it's uninteresting. I just don't feel like I need to be in that washing machine. Number one, yeah. N- number two. Then I, I, I slowly stopped reading any arts coverage, and I cannot tell you how much better I feel for it. Like, look, there was something in the Washington Post apparently a couple weeks ago where it was like the top twenty, whatever the fuck, and. The, the amount of agita that friends of mine who were on it, but it said something weird, not on it, but they wanted to be or not on it, but they hate those people and like whatever. It's like the amount of of foam that that came off of this little listicle, right? Somehow turned into this big thing, right? And, and it's like, and and you you realize that there's this whole other ecosystem of like caring about that. And in New York, it's so absurd because it's like. If, pe- if you really care that much about about like how the Times thinks about what you do, you're literally putting yourself at the mercy of three white homosexual men. You're like, yeah. you're in, my entire Why? life depends on yeah. one, of, Why? one of these three gays liking or not liking or finding... And like, maybe they're just bitter that day and you're like, or really? Or, like, or yeah. they're great. Or, they're, or they're, they yeah. have a brilliant observation or whatever, but it's just like... You know, it, do, do you, you see what I'm saying? It's like the, there's so many more, there's so many more interesting ways to 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 measure your impact. Yeah, and to self-evaluate. And I don't, I yeah. don't think it's uninteresting. And I'm, I'm glad that other people care about it so much. But the other thing, and this is again, spe- like not reading anyone else's reviews has been great. And what it, and here, and here's why. I think the most disgusting thing in the world is when people congratulate people on having gotten a good review. I think that's so awful. And it happens all over Facebook, right? Where someone's, someone's like, so proud to have, you know, thank you. Thank you, New York Times. And everyone's like, congratulations, so well-deserved. And in all of that, in all of that bullshit, you, you completely lose track of whatever craft has gone into making the piece that we're talking about, right? Also, what's the opposite of congratulations? Like, sorry? You know, it's a, I mean, it was, it's a really interesting question. And so what I, what I try to do, if, if I've gone to something of someone's right, then that's fine. I don't need to read the review. If I can't, if I can't go, I make it a point to write to them and say, can I have a score and a recording or can I have a MIDI demo or so, something? And so then it's like, I, I don't need to know what, you know, in what system this has a certain kind of value. What I need to know is what I, you know, how it, how I engage with it, and then similarly, again, moving backwards to the kind of choral thing that that opened it up for me in a sense of the music that I love the most was not written for a review or for applause or for whatever. Like you, you know, maybe you could say, okay, like it, you know, in this in the in the court of you know Henry the whatever, like these musicians were in favor and out of favor, but but actually, you know, it's it's a sacred architecture. So okay. I I think I think worrying about it. Is kind of a waste of time, and it 
it does really put you and, and the economy of like thank you for a good review and and fuck you for a bad one really does put you at the mercy of strangers in a way that's not that's that can blind you from the real communicative duty of the composer and the performer yeah um if that and if preclude that you and preclude you from your own experience of it yeah exactly and and also it again it's like it's like there's a well, I, you know, I, anyway, I, and again, I'm not saying no one, sh- no one should read their reviews or, you know, but I, it really did. I, I felt like 15 pounds lighter, just not worrying about it and, and yeah. watch it, watching my really, really good friends, like, like intimate friends put so much weight in this thing that is, it, it's, it's hard, it's hard to watch sometimes. And I know that, I know that a good review or about a good review can be like a career boost. Like I, I understand this. But I really do feel like it gives it an enormous amount of power and turns into kind of like Gollum with the ring, right? It's like, if you've got it, then, you know, and if you don't have it, it's like... Nico, we've only got a couple of minutes. We can go a bit longer if you want. We can go like five or whatever. Oh, fabulous. Then, uh, get through, in that get, case, through, get through your question so we don't end on some weird note about me talking about like uh, <laughs> <laughs> our our, uh, our last series of questions are, are largely about um, just looking forward. Um, and you know, we're in this moment together in COVID. It's terrible. I loved your tweet, by the way, where you were sort of talking about the impact of COVID on your um, notations in your score, <laughs> for, you know, like Londonissimo and these yeah, things. Yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, sort of looking forward, um, two questions I wanted to ask. One is just, um, what are you excited about right now? What What is exciting you? What is inspiring you? If you can find those feelings right now, if you can access those feelings, mm-hmm. um, what projects are inspiring you? That's a little vague. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, the, you know, there's a bunch of stuff going on that, 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 uh, I don't know. It's it's hard. It's hard because I feel like I feel like you know, inspired in, is in the etymologically radical sense. You're breathing in, and there's not much air <laughs> to breathe. Uh, it feels like space balls, right? Where it's like air has been sucked out by that giant vacuum. Um, I am excited to see what the kids do. Like I, I feel like I'm excited to see what people in their twenties are going to do with this. I'm excited that um, I have a I have a not a theory, but I'm I'm super excited about about people expanding their but performers expanding their sense of what they can do alone at home i'm very nervous that you that performers ability to spend six thousand dollars on some microphones and cameras and stuff is going to be the dividing line um mm-hmm. and i think that needs to be addressed like sooner rather than later and that schools need to like if you go to juilliard juilliard should partner with avid and avid should give every student a sibelius license and every student should get like a Logitech webcam or something, you know, something so that there isn't this like really obvious, because that's what was so busted up in the first couple of months of it. Right. It was like people who had the resources to just go on Amazon and get like a kit were, you know, at an advantage, basically. At an advantage is even yeah. the word. I mean, it's, it, you know, I, I, Privilege I, I coached a, I coached a percussion seminar and it's like, it was literally like who had the money versus whose marimba didn't sound like Nintendo. Um, and that's horrible. And that can't, that's not acceptable. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. so I'm excited about like whatever resilient structures um, build up. I'm excited about, um, you know, because I'm from, from Vermont, this is a metaphor. Maybe other people won't, won't know, but you know, the cows have been in the barn the whole year. And when you let them out in the springtime, they buck and they go wild, and and the you know the the girls are are going crazy, um, and I'm excited to see what that what that feels like. Um, and 
I'm, I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to feel excited about anything because we don't know when it's over. No. Like every two seconds, and, and the news is a nightmare because it's like, well, this is going to be the worst two weeks. This is going to be the worst two weeks. It's like, bitch, it's already been the worst two weeks. Like, <laughs> every fucking two weeks. Every two weeks. Yeah, have, and sometimes it overlaps, right? I'm like, wait, you yeah. just said two weeks. Now you're going to say another. You know, it's just awful. So I, I, I find myself really unable to be like specifically excited. Um, I'm selfishly excited to like ride a plane. I'm selfishly excited to see my friends. I'm selfishly excited to you know, hear all this music that I wrote that got canceled. I'm selfishly excited to go to the opera. Um, and this is the worst thing I'll say. One of the things that I miss the most is not going to something. <laughs> Being I like, oh, I can't. So I'm so up, busy. You just like, can't. Not even you can. No, it's not, not like making up an excuse. Just I having the choice. And you can't just make having me. the choice. Yeah. The you guys, to literally, the like tonight is the night when I am going to stay in the studio until 10 and write. And yeah. I will, I'm just not going to go to Chike 4. And you can't make me. <laughs> yeah. As opposed to this, as opposed to this moment where everyone is like, well, what are you doing? You're at home and you've got an internet connection. How can you not? come to a thing or yeah i can't I, yeah. so anyway all, all of which is to say i'm i'm excited isn't quite the, the the right right word but i think when we get out of this thing um uh i forgot so i wrote i wrote laurie anderson the first couple couple months of this just being like hey how are you doing and she said something so laurie anderson where she was like <laughs> if this thing has sides and i don't know if it does i'm sure i'll see you on the other one <laughs> if this thing has sides it's so lorry right um but that's kind of how i feel about it where it's like i don't know what direction we're going to get out of the box and i don't know what it's going to look like and we have to immediately fix all the stuff that's fucked up especially especially about how it relates to access to resources and whatever that's got to be like the first thing that we do and i think this is a, a good and i say we as if i have any control over it but you know it, it to a certain extent something that's been cool about this is i've been doing a bunch of teaching almost exclusively to people who don't live in New York and to whom I would not have not, they, they wouldn't have access to like this form of, of intimate, you know, being going back and forth. And that's been, that's been really, I think great. And I hope that that form of, you don't need to be here, you know what I mean? To, to feel like you're included in a, in a, in a um, conversation. So I hope, yeah. I hope I'm excited about that. Like people can be anywhere. And, and still ha and still feel connected. Yeah, I had I had a question uh, based on I was watching the new music help desk video that you joined in on, and and composers were calling in and asking you questions. And at one point, one of the composers called in and was asking about your viola concerto. took just a moment and you described the beginning of it and you your hands were up in front of you and you were showing this like clearly what you saw when you were writing that piece you had this visual representation and it made me wonder if that's a common way for you to compose music when you're setting out to write something new do you see it is there a visual component to your compositional process 
That's a good question. I mean, in that particular case, if I'm if I'm remembering what what we're talking about, um, was uh, so we use a lot of a lot of uh, words in when we talk about music that we that have different meanings in reality or in dance. Like if we say line, dance these people in dance say line, it means two different things. We say phrase, it means different things. If I say texture, um that to a musician that means a bunch of different that, that can mean a bunch of different things if i say texture to you know other people they think it's like what your what your bed sheets feel like right and or they you know what and it's sometimes it's difficult to explain um what we mean when we say textures so i would say that what i was probably doing was was forcing a visualization of what for me was a sonic thing mm. and what that concerto which we can i'm sure we can play what that does is the the very beginning is a kind of what i would call meshwork texture where it's where it's something that looks solid or looks um or uh it look it looks solid depending on how you light it sort of like a scrim right mm -hmm. where and it's all these things kind of suspended in air um moving at different tempi and uh so it, so for me it was very vision it was a very sorry it was a very um audio texture just think thinking about thinking about sort of crystalline structures and and you know things that when you throw them up stay up <laughs> but again that that for me is, is sonic and then and then you can visualize it if you want to, you can visualize it if you want to but sometimes sometimes i think it's good to again let people let people think about texture in a as abstract or as tangible a way as they as they can and i think um i don't let me give you an example. If, if you're listening to a piece of orchestra music, right, and you want to make a pass through it that's just thinking about textures, I think that's a great way to study a score, right? Just, just, or just think about dynamics, or just think about range. Like, is there high stuff? Is there low stuff? Just, just really break it down. Um, and I think you'll find yourself being drawn towards uh, a visual map of things, or an emotional map of things or you know you'll find you'll you'll find it kind of repellent <laughs> structures or alluring alluring textures and i realize i'm speaking in code but that's yeah the, the answer is no i don't think about it visually at first i can think about anything visually if i put my mind to it <laughs> but it it um you know it's it's useful to i think it's useful to have the vocabulary to do it any way you want yeah that's awesome the other thing I wanted to ask about was the drone project because we didn't get a chance to talk about that. And that's something that's really fascinating to me. I, you talk about it as that you, you, when you first brought it up, you were talking about being on an airplane and hearing the pitch of the engines essentially. And then as the plane moved forward on the tarmac, it rose in pitch and then it came back down and you were, you talked about how you have this association with the background noise of, of life. Is that, am I describing that correctly? Yeah. And I think that's really fascinating and something that I personally have always had uh, an attachment to. I, I feel like I hear the sounds around me a lot and I, I interact with the, those pitches in ways like I'll, we, Giacomo and I've talked about this. I have an electric toothbrush and it makes a pitch. Oh my so God, sometimes I know. I while know. brushing my teeth, I'll hum along Same. with that single pitch. And, it's the choir and nerd in all of us. It, it is a little bit of a choir yeah. nerdy thing, but it's also something that really, it satisfies me deep down. Um, and so I wanted you to, if you could 
tell us a little bit more about the drone project um, and and how you conceive of that and then where you see it going, especially in regard to choral music? Sure. I mean, it's I, I, I wish I had a heady <laughs> and complicated explanation. It's really quite simple. I mean, I, it you know, for me, what that what that opened up was, OK, so you've got this you've got this fixed thing and then whatever you put against the fixed thing um it's like a horizon line, right? And you can you can play with and and manipulate sort of foreshorten things. For, for instance, you've got the fixed thing and you put something right next to it, right? That's like a minor second above or below. Suddenly you're aware of a form of gravity of of sort of an object being drawn towards a line. Um, or you're if you put something an octave above it, suddenly you're aware of another kind of resonance or something a fifth above it, you're aware. So so basically it's about establishing different gravitational um mm. you know like basically you can, you can make the drone feel like home base or you can make it feel like it's you know it's you basically it's it's recontextualizing a single object um in a bunch of different ways it's incredibly simple the project is incredibly simple um with with choral music i mean you know I, honestly the, i've written a couple pieces i i've just um i've written two introits that have drones in them the um Oculi omnium introits for the uh i wrote them for modeling college um oxford but they do them at westminster abbey primarily now uh and you know i don't know it's fun and i think it's also a way to get to what's fun about those pieces is that you can just kind of all participate in them and you can just make drones and do and you know it's a fun way to have an orchestra you just say do it just hear the rules you know, you've got to be the, exactly this pitches. Don't get too loud. Don't get too soft. You know, whatever. Um, I the first drones project I wrote was, or uh, not the one the first, but one of them is for my longtime collaborator and good friend Pekka Kusisto, the Finnish violinist, and he sometimes does the first movement of drones and violin as an encore. Where he has the whole orchestra just hum or or play or whatever the E flat and the B flat. Um, and what it does is it is it creates a really explicit environment in which notes have in which notes have um, more complicated meanings than if you were just playing them alone. But again, it's 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 such a simple idea, and it shouldn't it shouldn't be more or less artistically engaging than you singing along with your toothbrush. That's not quite what I mean, but it is it is meant to be music that just kind of you find that. Yeah. that. And I'm you know obviously eventually I'd love to write a set for for every instrument, but I've also been thinking about weird ways to weird ways to write things that uh, are very portable, where you can just you know like you just play the drone through your speakers and then uh there's 10 things that you can do on top of it and it'll sound good <laughs> yeah that's cool do you have one one final question for i have to bounce giacomo you got one last one uh no but this a, a random last request um we are trying to create a thing called the playlist of joy that we hope um it will mirror the barns coming out and sort of like we're, we're trying to sort of preload this feeling because in these conversations one thing we've learned is that um it feels like the thing that is lacking for everyone right now is this feeling of joy like we just don't have access points to that right now um and music has the ability to do that for us 
along anywhere on the spectrum of music, is there any music right now that is giving you life? That is just giving you, like, you, you when you're just like, I just need a little bit of something to kind of get me yeah. out of bed in the morning or whenever. What are those, what are those pieces and what might we add to our playlist of joy? Graceland. Graceland. Done. Paul Simon <laughs> Graceland. The entire, the entire album or that one piece? No, the whole album. You just press play. The whole album. It, Done. <laughs> it's like, it, that's, that's my answer. It, you, you just, that's what you do. <laughs> Graceland's I'm, I'm, great. I mean, that's, that, that's my easy answer. I mean, anything else, anything else besides that, you start getting into more quali- more qualified joy, uh, which also sounds like a bad piece for small ensemble, but um, in, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Right, we've all been to that at the conservatory, right? Um, but yes. but uh, yeah, Grace, Graceland's the best. I mean, I, I've I've um, I haven't been able to listen to too much new music during this. I, I've gone back to you know, as I said, like you just go and sit and watch Star Wars and let your mind turn to mind turn to jelly. And and you know, there's something about the the joy in things that you know, and just going back to it and saying like, hey. <laughs> How you doing? Um, in the same in the same way, and I, I, my friends and I say this all the time. It's like I want to go to the bar that we always go to and not make a plan with someone and just know that you'll see them there, mm-hmm. right? I want to go to a familiar place and not like make a huge plan or like a reservation or if it is a reservation one of those it's one of those things where you like you know the maitre d and it's like you kind of do and you kind of don't or whatever like that's what i want and and for me like going back to older music is is that so sure like that you know you listen to the talus scholars doing macho christi whatever um but but for me the answer really really is like graceland (laughs) That's a great answer. I'm, I'm going to put it on today. Nico, thank you so much. I will. Because it's also the, exactly the length of some kind of task that's like that's like dinner is, is a Graceland, like making dinner is a Graceland, or or organizing something is a Graceland, or, you know, there's, there's a, there are things that you can get, get done in exactly that time. The Reich Octet is similar, where it's like you put it on, and then you can kind of, you know, wash a bunch of stuff. <laughs> Uh, I think that was the last of my questions, uh, Zane, unless you had any others. But I, Nico, thank you so much. This was super fun. My pleasure. I did the best time. I'm glad. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the In Unison podcast. If you've got ideas for our podcast, please send us a message at ideas at inunisonpodcast.com. And who knows, maybe Chorus Dolores will ask us to talk about it during announcements. In Unison is sustained, nourished, and fostered by you, our loyal and loving listeners. And don't forget to subscribe to In Unison on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at In Unison Pod. And hey, if you like what you heard, tell a friend or a section mate. Thanks again for tuning in. See you soon. Supernumerary chorus members recruited by Chorus Dolores, who wants to remind you that every time you sing flat, an angel loses its wings. In Unison is produced and recorded by Mission Orange Studios. Our theme music is Mr. Puffy, written by Avi Bortnik, arranged by Paul Kim, and performed by the Danish vocal jazz ensemble Dynamic on their debut album, This Is Dynamic. Special thanks to Paul Kim for permission. Be sure to check them out at www.dynamicjazz.dk.